Today's episode is sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone, from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 232 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about creating a craft magazine with my guest, Megan Fernandez. Megan is a knitting designer and instructor, as well as co-founder and creative director at Pom Pom. After 10 years in London, she's now based in Austin, Texas, where she lives with her husband and young daughters, and she revels in the challenge of making and enjoying knitwear for a hot climate. Megan Fernandez, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I love Pom Pom. I'm excited to learn more about it and its history and how this beautiful magazine came to be and has endured for quite a long time now, about 10 years. So that's a huge accomplishment. And so um, tell me first how you learned to knit. Oh, um, I love this story. (laughs) Uh, But I was 16. And um, I had a boyfriend, uh, you know, like a a long term, serious high school boyfriend. And um, his mom was great. And um, she, I knew that I wanted to learn to knit. And so I maybe it was my 16th or 17th birthday. I'm not sure. She bought me a sweater's worth of yarn, took me to the yarn store, bought me a sweater's worth of yarn and sat me down and made me knit a whole sweater. Um, but she's an amazing person and we still keep in touch and I send her books and magazines every now and then. Um, yeah. Um, so it was a really nice experience and a nice person to learn from. Yeah. What kind of sweater was it? Um, I struggled to remember, I think not realizing how, um, special it might be to me later in life. I pulled it apart and made different things out of the yarn. That's um, funny. Uh, you know, like a year or two after. Um, but it was like a purple marled, um, like a, like a light purple marled kind of yarn. Um, and it was a, it was a copy of a pattern that she'd had since the seventies or something. And, um, she gave me like her project bag to put everything in and, um, it was a really sweet experience. Yeah. And you said, though, that you had known you wanted to learn how to knit. Um, and then kind of she kind of took it from there. How did you know you wanted to learn? I'm not sure. I don't I don't really remember. Um, I definitely didn't think of myself as like an artistic or a creative person back then. But I did like doing kind of crafty things. Um, and I do have a memory. I think my first memory of knitting was seeing somebody in the waiting room of a doctor's office knitting something. And I remember like staring at it and thinking, how is she doing that? <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. Cool. And where where were you growing up? I grew up in the suburbs of Washington D.C. Oh, in me Virginia. too. Yeah. Okay. I grew up in <laughs> I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, so not too far away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you were you said you weren't really identifying as like artistic um, in those early years. What kinds of things were you interested in? That's a good question. I, I when I was a kid, I loved to dance, and so I think that was probably my main interest. And I loved to read, so I ended up doing my uh, degrees in English, um, which surprisingly people think, oh, you'll, you're never going to use an English degree, but here I am. Yeah, <laughs> you will. Magazine, if you, yeah. you will if you found a magazine. So um, okay, so you love to dance and you love to read. Um, and where did you go to college? I went to college in Boston at Northeastern University. Yeah. And um, I mainly chose that because they have a, a program where you can work while you study and they help you get a job that has something to do with your um, degree, maybe. <laughs> they sort of say that they will do that. I don't know if that any of my jobs then really uh, did that. But um, that, that way I was able to wait, work my way through college. Yeah, I know. Northeastern is very unique that way. They have yeah. this like trimester sort of program. Yeah. Um, yeah, I live right near there. So no. oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely a very cool um, situation. Did you have any specific work experiences there that you found to be like really impactful or satisfying? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I actually ended up my job the one, the one that they kind of organized for me ended up being at the university um, in the commencement office. So I learned a lot about event management there, which came in handy. Um, I worked as an event uh, manager later before I started Pom Pom and, um, and just kind of the inner workings of like an academic institution. Um, so that was, that was interesting in that way. And just kind of my boss there was probably the most organized person I've ever met. And so I learned a lot from her, um, in that way. So it wasn't totally, um, like, you know, useful, useless experience. Um, and I did enjoy it. And I, you know, I, I worked on Huntington Avenue in Boston. Um, and you know, it was just like a great place to be and, uh, and a fun place to work. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Getting some of those professional sort of skills and mindset, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. So um, afterward, you said you worked as an event manager for a while. I know something brought you to London and you were in London for a long time and that's where Pom Pom was founded. So um, so what were the steps that happened after graduation that, um, that eventually led you there? Well, I actually um, left Boston about halfway through my degree to study in um, London because the other thing about Northeastern is that um, they really encourage things. They call it experiential education. So things like you can do as much study abroad as you want. Uh, so I did. <laughs> and uh, I did like half my degree in London. Um, so I think I think starting in sophomore year, junior year, now I can't remember. It feels like a long time ago. Um, I did study abroad in London and um, I met my the, the man who's now my husband there. And, um, when I realized that I could keep studying there and that I really, I mean, I love the city. Um, I did everything I could so that I could keep, uh, going to school there. Um, and so my degree is from Northeastern, but I did half my degree overseas. Wow. And what, what college there? Um, I first, I did a summer program at Cambridge, which was amazing. And then, um, I actually, <laughs> I did a lot of like roundabout things while I was there. But um, 
I was able to be like a guest student of James Madison University, which is in Virginia, um, of their study abroad program <laughs> for a semester. And then after that, I went to Goldsmiths um, for the rest of my undergrad degree, which is an art and design um, focused uh, university there. And then I did my master's at King's College in London. Wow, so cool. Yeah, you must have really fallen in love with London. I've been there and it was great. But um, yeah, I don't know, like if I at 18 or 20 would have been like, this is what I want to do. I want to live here. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> pretty adventurous, far away from Virginia, for sure. Yes, I think that was the point. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> escape, escape from home. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so um, and so um, after after you finished your degrees, did you, um, were you able to get work in, in London? Yeah, actually, while I was still an undergrad and at Goldsmiths, I, um, I got a job at a publishing company. Um, and that was my only time working for a publishing company that was not, um, pom pom. And I was, you know, very, very bottom of the ladder there. I, and in fact, my job was to basically translate, um, British English to American English. Um, and it was a lifestyle publisher. So they did books about like interior design and craft, um, and things like that. So, um, I was the person who changed all the Z's to S's or vice versa for the different, um, territories. I see. That's funny. Okay. So, um, but, it, but it actually dovetails really nicely with Pom Pom in that, you know, it, they were publishing, um, materials that were meant for creatives. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And I learned about the different departments, um, like, you know, what a picture researcher does and um, things like that. So it was it was cool. It was a really nice um, first job to have in London. Yeah. So how did you meet? I know that Pom Pom was co-founded with Lydia Gluck. So how did you meet her? um, And were you working um, somewhere else or or how did you two kind of come together? Yeah. So, um, after I finished my undergrad, I did, um, well, then I started working, um, at a gallery for architecture where I was the events manager, uh, which was really interesting. And I met lots of really interesting people. And then, um, I did my master's degree, um, in English literature. And then I kind of, um, was at a loose end and started working in a yarn store in London called Loop. Okay. Um, and Lydia started working there around the same time and we just kind of hit it off. And I think, you know, working in a yarn store is, is, is so fun. And, um, you know, we'd, I, I would sit there for hours when it was quiet and like, look at the wall of yarn and plan projects and, um, you know, try to, try to make the job into a creative one. And, you know, there was lots of opportunities for that, like helping customers figure out what kinds of yarns they wanted to use for things and stuff like that. But, um, Lydia and I both noticed that the magazines that came through the door were not ones that really spoke to us really strongly. And it was around the time that, um, there was kind of a renaissance in, um, beautifully made magazines, things like, um, Kinfolk were starting and Frankie magazine out of Australia. And my husband, um, is a graphic designer and creative director. And, you know, I'd be flipping through knitting magazines in bed and he'd be like, Hmm. (laughs) 
and he actually got his one of his first jobs was at a music magazine in Scotland. So, um, kind of uh, all of those things brewing. Lydia and I were kind of like, you know, it'd be fun if we kind of tried to to make a magazine as just kind of a creative project. She had recently finished a master's in linguistics, and um, we were both kind of at loose ends about what we were going to do with our lives. And so, yeah, um, I mean, I recently got an invoice to renew our domain <laughs> and it said that we bought the domain in February of 2012, which I think was about a month after we decided that we were going to do this. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, that's pretty fast. So had you been knitting all along since your high school boyfriend's mom's lesson <laughs> or had you like, you know, had you improved your skills and kind of like really gotten into it or had you been designing or, cause it sounds like when you were at Lucien's, you were like, Oh, here's what I can do. I'll get a job at a yarn shop. So I'm imagining you must've been, you know, knitting or at least been interested in yarn. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, through my early college days, it was just like a fun thing I did. I like knit beer cozies or, <laughs> scarves for my friends and things like that. But then um, around the same time that I was doing my master's degree, Ravelry started. And, you know, knitting blogging, as you know, craft blogging was kind of exploding then. Yeah. And, um, and I think there was some point through all of those years where I was home, um, maybe writing like, uh, I probably was writing PhD like uh, applications, which thank God I didn't do that. That would have been a mistake. But, um, you know, I had a lot of, I had a lot of time at home. And so I was blogging and knitting a lot. And um, I actually wrote my master's um, thesis on knitting in, in 20th century women's literature. Oh, wow. Um, That's cool. And so, yeah, it was definitely like, you know, front of front of my mind um, for a while for for a few years um, before we started working at the yarn store and started pom pom. So is there a lot of knitting in 20th century women's <laughs> literature? Now I'm like trying to think back of all the 20th century women's literature and references to people knitting. <laughs> I mean, um, Virginia Woolf has a lot. Um, and so she was the main um, focus, but also A.S. Byatt. Um, they were the two authors that I focused the most on. Um, but at the time, you know, you know, it was a thing where a lot of, um, my professors were like, oh, nobody's ever written about that before. And so they were really excited. Um, so uh, it was great that I had kind of an original idea to write about because, you know, with sort of um, classic literature or, you know, stuff that's like in the canon, there's, you know, a lot's been done already. So they were excited that it was kind of a new a new thing to look at. Yeah, a new sort of um, focus on women's work. So yeah. yeah, that's cool. All right. So so you you met Lydia um, and and were her skills. I mean, one of the things that's really um, valuable in going into a new business with a partner is that you bring different skills to the table. So did mm -hmm. I know I know you mentioned she had a degree in linguistics um, and you have one in English that's sort of similar. But did you feel like um, your skill set and hers were complementary? Yeah, um, I. I could not have been luckier in finding someone to start a business with. I think, um, you know, when I talk to other business owners who don't have a partner, it's really hard for them because um, sometimes they have to like go outside their organization to have somebody to bounce out ideas off of, which I'm sure works for a lot of people. But for Lydia and I, it's really nice to have somebody be like, 
yes, that's a good idea. Or hmm, maybe we should think about this a bit more. Um, and we seem to be on the same wavelength about a lot of stuff and we trust each other a lot um, and have a lot of respect for each other's opinions about, about things. Um, I would say that she was definitely had more of a creative background than I did when we started. Um, but we do have kind of a similar, we have a similar taste in things, but we um, kind of apply those tastes differently, which I think is really good. I think um, if I had started Pump Pump by myself, it definitely wouldn't be the same, the same thing that it is with Lydia and vice versa. Um, so yeah, we both have sort of language arts backgrounds, which obviously helps when you're writing and editing a magazine. Um, but creatively, and then also business-wise, we have different strengths. And do you have some tips for people who, because when you are in a partnership, um, owning a business together, this person becomes like your work wife, you know, like you yep. contact, you're in contact with them sometimes more than you are with your spouse um, yep. on a day to day basis. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, there can be differences of opinion, people can also go through, um, you know, big life changes over yeah. 10 years that stress you know, the relationship in different ways or just some day-to-day crisis management with the business itself. You've got financials and how to spend the money that's coming in and make those kinds of decisions. So do you have any tips on the, like the longevity of your partnership and what's made it work? That is a good question. I mean, both of us um, have been through many big life changes in nearly 11 years of being partners. Um, And it is so amazing to have a partner to lean on, um, in those situations. Like I've had two kids and, you know, in the UK, it's not unusual for people to take a year's worth of maternity leave. Um, and Lydia was like, take, take a year if you want, you know, and I was like, I'm not going to do that to you. But, you know, I took six months with both of my kids and, um, she's taken sabbaticals for various things. And so I think, um, being able to lean on each other has been huge. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what advice I could give to people who are not Lydia and I. <laughs> um, I think we just got really lucky finding each other and having such similar values. Um, and we were, you know, pretty young when we started. So I don't know that there's any way that we could have known for sure that we would. Um, have all of these similar values and continue to have them as the years went on. Um, But I think just knowing that um, one person can take the time they need or have the like break they need or the slack they need um, at one point and then the other person can pick that up at another point um, is really good and having that understanding for each other. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy. And here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. 
Visit CraftsyOffers.com for a special holiday deal. Sign up and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. It's an awesome holiday deal. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And at one point, there was a, you know, a a really big move because you were in person together in the beginning of the business, and then you moved back to the U.S. into Texas. So um, first of all, what brought you to Texas? And then how do you two keep in touch? Like what systems or apps or things do you use to be able to keep in touch and plan, you know, these giant projects, which are putting out issues and books and things like that? Yeah. So, um, after 10 years in London, I, I needed some vitamin D. I think actually truly like physically and emotionally, I needed some sunshine. (laughs) And, um, and so my husband and I, um, decided we would, we would move to the States. He's, um, actually Australian, um, but also Scottish. Um, and he was excited about the idea of moving to America. And so, um, we looked at a few different places and where he could work and where I could work. And um, we had been to Austin um, on vacation and really loved it and could see that our quality of life or sort of the style lifestyle would change a lot if we moved to Austin. Um, and I remember breaking the news to Lydia and it being <laughs> not an easy, not an easy um, transition to take on, but actually I think it worked out um, pretty well. And I think Lydia would agree um, because we were able to expand um, into the U.S. market a lot more. And actually, because we are such good friends, when we're in the same room together, it's kind of hard to get stuff done (laughs) because we like to chat about everything. So um, being in different places actually makes us a little bit more productive. Uh, But and and now here in Austin, we have like you know, a location where we ship us orders from and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting at first, uh, we used to fly back and forth for photo shoots, um, and alternate them between the U S and the UK, uh, but the pa- pandemic and babies, um, kind of, uh, put a stop to that. So now we each just ch- take on, um, different photo shoots 
um, depending on the season. And we use Slack and we're on Slack together um, every day of the week. And our whole team is, our whole team is kind of spread out now. Um, and there are nine of us. So, um, so yeah, you know, when I moved, there was no way of knowing that businesses would work like this kind of because of the pandemic eventually anyway, but we had kind of, um, we had kind of already put that into practice before it became totally necessary because of the pandemic. Right, right. Okay, so let's go back to that um, time when you're reading knitting magazines in bed and your husband who has a graphic design background is looking at them and you and Lydia are talking about the ones that are coming into loop and thinking there's room in the market for something different. Um, So what was the knitting magazine scene like um, when you decided to create Pom Pom? Um, Well, I think it was a little different in the UK compared with the US, but um, loop had both, um, in the shop. So, you know, it was, um, you know, the kind of glossy thin paper, um, that we were used to back then. And, um, and in the UK, you can buy knitting magazines in the grocery store and often they come with like a little, um, gadget or or like a pair of plastic knitting needles, like in a, in kind of a plastic, um, uh, what's the word for it? Like Like a little like plastic covering. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. We've all seen that kind of thing. It's sort of like bundled with the magazine. Yeah. So, um, and there might be like 20 patterns in, in an issue and they would come out monthly and it seemed like we could do more quality over quantity. And, you know, we just, we knew that, um, knitters are like tactile people and, you know, Indie dyed yarns were just blowing up at the time. And so people being really conscious about the materials they were using um, and the fact that you spend so much time making something, um, the materials or the magazine or the book or whatever you're using should kind of live up to that standard if if you can. And um, and so that was kind of our our vision. And to use all those indie dyed um, yarns, because I I think with traditional magazine publishing, a lot of the yarns they used were dependent on like big advertising dollars. And that was not something that we were doing. Um, And so um, I think along with some indie yarn brands, we kind of grew with them alongside them and together um, by working together in that way. Right. And what about advertising? Because all of us have, you know, opened those magazines where... I don't know, like half or sometimes it feels like more than half of the pages are all ads. Um, and, you know, that's the, the main way the magazine is funded. There's subscriptions and one-off sales too, but advertising is the primary way that the magazine is able to exist. So when you were thinking about advertising, what were your considerations there? Well, we wanted um, small businesses to have a voice and... Um, our cover price uh, was a little bit higher. Well, you know, it was considerably higher than the magazines that you saw on the shelf in the grocery store in the UK. Um, but advertising has never been our main source of income. It's always been um, the price of the magazine. And it's funny because we always wanted to keep the ratio of ads low. Um, but I remember we did a survey one year and somebody was like, I want more ads. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> so, um, and we always, 
uh, try to make sure that the ads are beautifully designed and make sure that the brand who's advertising with us is presented in like the best possible light um, that we know will appeal to our readers so that it's like beneficial to both parties that the readers see things that that they are actually going to be interested in and that we know that they'll like and so that the advertisers can get out there to um, audience that they might not usually have an ac- have access to. So we actually have a really interesting um, way of doing our advertising so that um, people with all different kinds of budgets can participate. And that is a tiered system. So based on the company's turnover, um, the price changes depending on what their turnover is. Okay, so explain that a little bit more for people who are listening who are like, oh, this sounds like a good place for me to advertise. So, <laughs> so, um, so what do you mean by, by that? So, um, and obviously, we're not looking at their like financials or anything. We take it uh, like on an honor system, but like we have three different tiers. So um, if your company makes a certain amount of money in a year, then you pay one tier if they make a higher tier of money um, annually, then they'll they'll pay a slightly more um, expensive rate uh, for the magazine. I see. Uh, so yeah. the the ad itself is the same, but it's based yeah. like the same size or, or on the page yeah. looks the same, but you're paying more based on the sort of overall size of your company. Yes. Wow, that's a really interesting model. I'm not sure that I've heard about that before, but it does um, make it possible for, as you said, smaller businesses to be able to advertise in a magazine. And I think when a magazine has advertisements that are very well done, I can see why that reader from the survey was like, I want more ads. If they are beautifully done, you do actually learn about cool things through the ads. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that was our aim. And, you know, we sort of thought, oh, I wonder what you know, our advertisers with higher turnover will feel about this. But um, I think the spirit of inclusivity has really um, permeated the craft industry now. And I think that people are, they they understand why we do it and why that is fair. And um, we've had, we've had a really nice response to it. Yeah. Okay. So then you mentioned that the, the price for the magazine starting out, you know, it needed to be quite a bit higher than the sort of thin paper, glossy paper magazines that were in the grocery store. Um, and so how did you kind of figure out, I mean, it sounds like the paper is going to be nicer. There's going to be fewer patterns. Like how did you sort of figure out all the sort of nuts and bolts of getting started? Because it seems for me, like, I'm like, this is an overwhelming process. Where do I even go to begin to start an independently published magazine? <laughs> well, I mean, Lydia and I always say that if we had known how much work it was going to be, right. probably would not have <laughs> sure. done it. And, um, you know, we were so green. And um, I think that was actually to our benefit in a lot of ways, because there were no rules to break. We didn't know what the rules were. Um but yeah, my husband, having worked in magazine publishing before um, and then in advertising, print advertising, um, he definitely had, I, he, he knew about GSM, which is like how you refer to different weights of paper and, um, you know, all of the, you know, inks and, you know, what printers to, to get quotes from and stuff like that. So that was definitely a leg up um, having his experience there. And yeah. he designed the magazine to start with and did all the layout. And stuff, wow. So. Yeah. So you all almost were like a, a team of three in that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I guess you could say that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He actually came up with the name of the magazine. So I will give him that credit. Yeah. I was going to ask about the name because it's very like 
cheerful. I mean, you think of pom-poms, it's like cheerleaders. Um, but also <laughs> pom-poms is something that, you know, are fun to make. It goes on top of your hat. It's that like extra embellishment. So I, I wonder what you thought about when you were, t- you know, choosing that name. Yeah, we had a lot of, um, we had a long list of possible names. Um, but I guess we, we just didn't really feel like we had hit it you know, on the head yet. And, um, of course in the UK, cheerleaders are not really a thing. So, right. um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think we were just chatting and I was like, I need it to be fun and like wooly. And he was like, pom pom. And I was like, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Has that name at all been confusing to anybody over the years or have you had things about it that you're like, gosh, that name in some ways, you know, is, is, is not to our advantage. Um, not that I know of. Nobody okay. has ever, I've been surprised that there wasn't like a cheerleading magazine or, or anything that was already called pom poms. That would have been, um, smart of them, but, uh, no, uh, not to my knowledge. Okay, so you had some expertise on your side, um, and and do you remember what do you remember about the first issue and and sort of um, and, you know how large was that print run because that's you know you're you're putting up a quite a bit of, of money I'm guessing to be able to to fund the first print run and and betting that someone you know besides Loop where you're working is going to want to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we had a lot of knitting friends at the time because we worked in a yarn store and, um, they were all like, Oh, you should do subscriptions. They were like, we haven't even started yet. Like, (laughs) you know, they were like, you should do that. And then, so, you know, we started an Etsy shop and, um, people subscribed pretty quickly. Uh, we knew a lot of podcasters and it was a lot of word of mouth. And I can't remember if we did a Ravelry ad for the first issue, but I think we probably did. And, uh, we printed 500 copies, um, for the first run. And we did have a a problem with the first printer that we, that we hired and it didn't go well and it was pretty stressful. But, um, but yeah, uh, in the end we had 500 copies and, um, we wrapped them all in tissue paper and wrote, you know, handwritten thank you notes on each one. (laughs) And, um, and I can't remember, I'm trying to remember how we, even shipped them. Um, maybe we, we might've gotten a franking machine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we hand wrapped everything. A lot of them from my kitchen table. Um, and the whole production of it, the printing was our, was our only cost really the, the production we did on, on a shoestring. So, um, and we, we had, um, Lydia's friend model. We had her friend to take the pictures. We had my husband, uh, do the layout and she and I did all the designs and writing. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a low budget operation for the first issue for sure. And did you consider doing crowdfunding and, and I forgive me for not remembering when things like Kickstarter launched. So I don't know whether 2012 was too early for that sort of thing, but did you think about crowdfunding? I don't think we did. I think it might've been too early. Um, or maybe it was just, just starting. Um, but no, it wasn't something that we, it's not something I remember considering. Okay. Did you sell out of those 500 copies? At some point? Yeah, we did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then we, we did for our fifth anniversary, we did like a re, a reboot of it and took new pictures, but kind of made it, um, um, we freshened it up a little bit. Okay. (laughs) 
some of those patterns are still um, in demand. So yeah, yeah. So um, I'm I'm guessing that after the first the big huge push to get the first issue out, you you know, it's a quarterly magazine, but I'm I'm thinking now you've got all kinds of ideas and and things to to change for issue two. Yes. Um, and I think we had our, yes, I remember we had our friend Juju Vale, who's, um, just multi-talented at everything and is kind of our fairy godmother. She took the photos for issue two and we did it, um, instead of in the warehouse where Lydia was living with like 13 other people, we took the pictures like, um, at a pub in London and, um, yeah, we definitely, up to the production value <laughs> for issue two. Okay, great. And yeah. so it sounds like you had an Etsy shop, which is pretty hard to use to sell a subscription if anybody's tried that. Like Etsy doesn't actually have that as an option. No. So, um, so how are you working that? And then I'm assuming pretty quickly after you had to switch over to some other system. Yeah, I mean, that was 2012. So that was even, you know, pretty early Etsy days too. <laughs> um, and... Um, I think we must have had a spreadsheet of some kind. So somebody would buy a subscription and then we would put them on a spreadsheet. And I'm sure it was just like a lot of manual um, record keeping. I'm sure it was now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and then I'm trying to remember when we opened our own online shop. Um, and gosh, I can't remember. But I did design our first website online shop using WordPress. And thank God that we don't use that site anymore. <laughs> we, we definitely upgraded from the one that I built from WordPress and WooCommerce. Um, and now there are so many apps with um, Shopify and everything that make everything so much more streamlined and wonderful. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was just a lot of spreadsheets. Right. And the website now is really very fun, um, very kind of the lots of um, lots of uh, not white space because the space isn't white, but there's a lot of space for your eye to move around and like confetti, and it kind of feels very like um, I don't know, just very modern. Um, and so, do you want to talk a little bit about the the design of the site as it exists today? Sure. Um, in fact, our the sort of homepage of our website um, is reflective of a new website that will that will be uh, launching in the new year. Um, when it became clear that WordPress and WooCommerce were not uh, doing what they needed to do, we uh, got someone in who um, quickly sort of um, designed a very simple site. And he's since then, he's been working on um, an even better site to what we have currently, um, which is really exciting uh, and should feel a little bit more like an online magazine than a website um, when it launches. Okay. And you have a blog on there as well. Um, and I think that it could feel kind of, I don't know, like redundant or like just another piece of content to tackle, right? Because if you're putting together a magazine, you've got articles, you've got photos, you've got patterns, um, and all of that, you know, all the editing involved and all of that. And then to have a blog on top of it, it's, it's, that's a lot more work. So, so why have a blog as well? <laughs> well, the, the magazine is quarterly and it's meant to be a bit more um, evergreen. Um, so something that you could come back to and it, and it doesn't feel um, out of date really quickly. Um, not to say that the stuff on our blog goes out of date really quickly, but it's a bit more, um, 
it can happen a bit more often and it can be a little bit more kind of up to date and, you know, about events or things that um, other companies that are doing kind of in the moment. Um, I see. So I, yeah. Um, yeah. And I was going to say with the magazine issues, you um, you do want them to be very timeless, like evergreen. You can collect them. You know, you're not necessarily meant to just recycle this when you're finished with it. Um, and so there's no off sale date. Can you talk about what that means? Um, I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people do collect the magazines um, and um yeah, they are absolutely designed not to be thrown away right away and not to be just a um, kind of something that you read and then you're done with. Um, they're meant to be something that you would come back to and um, that are worth spending your time and money on. And um, yeah, I think, you know, Lydia and I are both people who, who, um, see the value in objects when they're well-made or well-produced. So that's always been kind of um, at the foundation of, of pom-pom. And they're sold at independent yarn shops. Like you mm-hmm. were working at one and um, it's a lot of independent yarn shops now who, mm-hmm. who are carrying them. How did you work on expanding? Um, and it sounds like having a, a shipping um, in the U S shipping hub in the U S was helpful, but how did you work on expanding that wholesale presence. And that seems like a, a pretty big job to, to sort of maintain as well. Yeah, we have um, a wholesale manager in the UK and in the US. So um, they work, you know, every day, <laughs> uh, maintaining those relationships and um, reaching out to people. And, and, um, you know, for a long time, it was, it was really nice. Uh, we had to do almost no work in that regard, people would always come to us. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's still the case with new shops opening and things like that, but we do also do a bit of outreach on our own. Um, and yeah, it's a huge job. And, um, Sophie and Jasmine are really, really good at it. And thank God for them because when we started, Lydia and I were doing all of that ourselves. Right. And it's <laughs> yeah. also, is it also bookstores, like independent bookstores? Yeah, we have independent bookstores. We have um, a distributor who specializes in um, specialist bookstores. Um, and yeah, and then we, you know, there are like select Joann's that will have it. Um, not all Joann's. I think they somehow know which ones um, people who will be interested in pom-pom go to, <laughs> if that makes sense, like yeah. New York or whatever. So occasionally you can find it at Barnes & Noble or Joann's. But okay. um, yeah. And that's all like arranged through this distributor. Yeah. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, okay. So when you think about how things have changed, that right, this was this launch was back in 2012 or in 2022. Obviously, we've all gone through a pandemic. Um, but beyond that, or maybe part of that is part of that. How is the scene for for knitting magazines or for I guess you know craft magazines in general sort of shifted over this past decade? Yeah. I mean, when we started, I think we were the only one. Um, like as, as an indie knitting magazine. Um, and some have come and come and go, um, over 10 years. And there've been some new, new ones that have, that have lasted a while. And, um, I feel like each one has a distinct style 
um, which is really nice. I think a lot of times on podcasts I get asked, you know, like, what advice would you give to someone um, who wanted to start a craft magazine? And my advice is always like, find your unique um, sort of spot in the crafting community and your own unique style. Um, and that's, um, I think what's happened with the indie magazines that are out there now. And, um, yeah, I think people come to expect a lot more from, from their magazines and books these days and, and the industry is rising to the challenge, which is great. Yeah. And we've, I think we've seen a lot of those glossy ones we were talking about earlier also fade away. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's sad because, um, I sort of grew up on a lot of those. And so, um, even though they weren't what uh, Lydia and I wanted to to bring to the table, they were still kind of meaningful for a lot of people in a different way, in different ways. And has the um, the paper shortage over the last you know little while um, been a struggle? Absolutely, yes, <laughs> yes. There's no way to gloss over that. It's it's um, paper costs a lot more money uh, now, and shipping heavy magazines and books has become a lot more expensive. So um, it's absolutely a struggle. And I know I see almost every small business I follow on Instagram, whether it's in the knitting community or publishing community or any community is, is struggling. Small businesses are having a hard time. So, um, so yeah. And have you decided to raise prices or? We raised our prices um, in the summer. Um, and uh I think it was time, you know, it was long overdue. We hadn't done it in, in probably five years and, uh, prices have continued to rise uh, since then. So it's a tricky thing. Yeah. Um, it's something that we, we spend a lot of time, um, trying to work out. Right. Yeah. I bet that, that does seem challenging. And now you also publish books, which is a whole sort of different, um, sector of publishing. So talk a little bit about the expansion from magazine, a quarterly magazine, into book publishing. Yeah, um, we actually published our first book probably five years ago now, and um, and we love we love publishing books, um, and we've worked with some amazing authors um, and designers over the years, and um, I think that uh, local yarn shops in particular love um, carrying our books, um, and especially we, we published a, um, learn to knit book, which is probably one of the the projects I'm most proud of that we've ever done. Um, and it took us a long time to write and to edit and to really get right. Um, Lydia and I have both been knitting teachers. Lots of our staff have been knitting teachers and, um, it is a book that shows you everything from, the moment you choose yarn and needles through to making socks or a sweater. And it has patterns for everything in between and techniques, everything you need to know in between. And the feedback that we've got on that has been incredible. And I know a lot of knitting teachers use it in their classes and um, it was published um, a few, I think pre pandemic and it's still um, one of our best selling titles. And do you have so. like a warehouse where all of these books are? They're not in your garage. <laughs> well, um, kind of. Yeah. I, I actually have a detached garage. I'm very lucky here in big Texas to have lots of space, um, and have a detached garage where lots of that stuff lives and gets shipped to local yarn stores. And we also have, um, a storage, uh, 
facility where we where we keep lots of back stock. But yeah. Um, and then in the UK, you know, it sits in different places with different distributors and things like that. But so. somebody's coming to help you with all this shipping. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm imagining like Megan out in the in the detached garage, like packing up all these orders. I'm like, this no, doesn't seem right. No, <laughs> no uh, Gail uh, has been with us since I got pregnant with my first kid. So um, seven years ago, and she is is basically like family because she's at my house every day. <laughs> um, and she helps. And then um, Rebecca also helps um, with the shipping. Um, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So you've got a whole team now, which is great, including some local folks um, that help you out. So, um, and I know you have a a new book that's for kids. And I think this is maybe the first foray and correct me if I'm wrong into kids and it's called mini palm. Yes, that's right. Yeah. For a long time, um, people would ask us, Oh, you know, you're going to do kids patterns. And I was like, it's not really our thing, you know? And of course now, um, I have a six-year-old and a, and a two-year-old and, um, you know, other members of our staff have also graduated into that, uh, to that realm. So, uh, yeah. And it, it was a really fun project to put together. And, um, it's a lot of, most of the patterns are mini versions of pom-pom patterns that we've published in the past, kind of favorite, um, pom-pom patterns for, grownups, but made smaller and then some new stuff too. Uh, but I definitely learned a lot during the photo shoot process. <laughs> <laughs> With hiring um, like child models. Yes, yes. Um, but it was really fun to do. And it's, um, it's a really fun and happy and colorful book, which is, you know, what we're about. So um, yeah. And I, I would love to hear a little bit of a preview of the spring issue, which is going to be coming out really soon of Pom Pom Quarterly. Yes. So, um, it's super exciting. And in fact, we're in the layout stage now. So everything's kind of coming together. It's that moment where everything comes together, the photos, the writing, the design of the magazine. And, um, we shot it here in Austin and, uh, the, the models kind of are the icing on the, on the cake. We had, um, Angel Flores who was one of the contestants. I don't know if contestants is the right word, but, um, I think they call them heroes on the um, most recent um, season of Queer Eye. Oh, wow. Um, and somebody named Alicia Weagle, who's an intersex activist here in Austin. So, um, so they were, cool. Yeah, they're, they're friends. And I think I saw them on Instagram sort of posing together. And I was like, oh, they would make amazing models. So... Very happily, they both said yes, and um, the theme of the issue was layers, and so we asked designers to kind of come up with new and interesting ways of um, of kind of um, illustrating what layers mean in knitwear. So um, it's really it's really beautiful and bright and happy, and um, I can't wait for people to see it. And as far as designers are concerned. Um, you know, do you put out calls for submissions? Is this a situation where a freelance knitwear designer could, you know, submit an idea and, and have it be considered for publication? Absolutely. And in fact, we're sending out a call for submissions today or tomorrow um, for um, winter 2023. So about a year from now. Um, and um, it is the theme is monochrome. So, um, yeah, you just go to pompommag.com for 
forward slash submissions. And there's a link to sign up to our mailing list. And so you'll get an email when a new call comes out and it's open to absolutely anyone. And we've um, worked with super experienced designers and we've worked with designers who've never published a pattern in their lives. Um, And it seems to have worked out pretty well. Um, Wonderful. That's great. Yeah. yeah. What a good opportunity for people. So um, I'd love to get to your recommendations if that's okay, um, because you've got some good one, um, really good ones. And for the first one, and I I checked this out after you sent it over, um, it's an Instagram account. And she she's a it sounds like she's like a professor, but she talks about like folk art history and like commentary on on folk art. So I'd love to hear why you love this account. Oh, I think I, I came across it at first because somebody had shared, there was this whole discussion on TikTok that kind of made it over to Instagram about how color was disappearing yes. from the world. And I thought it was so fascinating. Um, you know, pom-pom is very colorful and it's something that um, is kind of integral to what we do. And I, um, uh, I am of Indian heritage and uh, I feel like growing up, I always felt like a bit bright, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and so I thought it was really interesting how she brought it down to um, white supremacy and also um, the kind of tech uh, influence on why color um, was kind of fading from from our culture. And uh, it was just so super interesting. And then, you know, I started following her. And everything she talks about is interesting. Um, so I, I, I could spend hours just like looking at her videos and then researching the stuff that she's talked about. So, yeah, I love um, taking art history classes in, in college. So it kind of reminded me of those, the content of those classes too. So um, we'll link to the account in the show notes for this episode for folks who want to head over and check it out. Um, and then you have a favorite TV show that I've been meaning to watch, but it's on Hulu and that's the one streaming service we don't get, but it's called The Bear. And it just, I hear such good things about this show. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't really sure what to expect. You know, it's about a guy who runs a sandwich shop in Chicago. Um, and, oh, it's just so beautifully done. The writing is amazing. It's like, you know, I loved Mad Men and how every episode of Mad Men was like its own novel kind of thing. And the bear has writing that's up there with, with that. And, um, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't watch anything twice, but I would absolutely watch this over again. All right. I'm going to like shell out the money and get this just like for a <laughs> month. Free trial, yeah. 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 And just do it all and then cancel. That's what I like to do. <laughs> so that sounds good. And then, um, you also wanted to recommend project bags and needle cases from black pearl magic. Yes. Um, I discovered these, uh, via our social media manager, Gabriella, who I think snagged one of these bags at, Rhinebeck this year. Um, but they're, they're really cool. They're made, I don't, I don't know what you would call the material, but it's, um, but it's kind of translucent yeah. and really amazing colors and all handmade and they're so cool. And they actually, the look of them really fits in well with our forthcoming spring issue. So it's obviously a theme in my mind right now, but they're super cool. And, um, she makes these really cool needle cases too. I know I all, I have so many needles. I always need way, new ways to organize them. So um, I would definitely check those out if I were you. Okay, super. So we'll link to those as well. And Megan, this has been really 
Great. I loved learning about the history of this magazine. And I wish you guys just all the best as, you know, in the, in the, the years to come overcoming the paper shortage challenge and all the rest. And, you know, I think Pom Pom is just like a, a wonderful addition to the, the craft publishing world. Thank you so much. It's been um, so fun. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone. From knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today for a special holiday deal. Get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of Craft Industry News, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.